Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1366, air date November 27th, 2023. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Conversations with Joshua T. Berglund. Today, I have an amazing guest, really somebody that needs no introduction, but it's my job to introduce. So I got to tell you, I didn't know a lot about Dr. Shiva our esteemed guest today until uh, he got kicked off Twitter because he got kicked off right right about the same time I did and for a very similar reason. That's what got my attention. And when someone catches my attention, I go take a deep dive into who they are and what they're all about. And the cool thing about the internet is that you get to see what people talk about from years ago. And the internet's forever, as, as some of us know. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes that's a little scary and sometimes it's amazing. In this case, it's amazing because I got to watch some interviews from nine, eight, nine years ago of Dr. Shiva and really got to see who he is as a man before he even thought about running for president, before he even thought about running for Congress. And it is, I'm just humbled for this opportunity because you, when we talk about the American dream, we have this image of what it is. And it typically is an immigrant comes over with nothing. They bust their butt, they work really hard, they, and then they make their dreams come true. They start their own business, they get a home, all this. To me, Dr. Shiva represents the American dream. And that American dream seems to be hurting right now for a lot of people. In fact, that dream has turned into a nightmare. And I believe with my heart that Dr. Shiva is somebody that wants to bring that dream back, not just for American citizens, but for people that want to become American citizens. So I'm really excited about this. Typically, my broadcasts are, are conversations where we're going back and forth. But I have planned some questions that I think are very, very important. Um, and the coolest thing about it is, of all of these questions, if I was to give these questions to any existing presidential candidate other than Dr. Shiva, I don't think they could. I don't think they're qualified to answer. But Dr. Qu Dr. Shiva is qualified to answer these questions, and I think they're very important. And I'm very grateful that you're here. Dr. Shiva, welcome to Conversations with Joshua T. Berglund. It is an absolute honor to have you here. Great to be here, Joshua. You know, one of the points I want to make sure that I think you hit upon, Joshua, is the underlying theme is this. Um, those who haven't done and just talk about something, you can't trust these people. Okay. It's no different than someone sitting on the sidelines talking about how to pitch a ball, how to throw a curveball, how to be a major league pitcher. And they've never, ever... Uh, gone through that process of going through the farm leagues, right? Going through the minors and achieving that. And that's what all of these people are. They want to talk about the plight of the American worker. They want to talk about um, small business owners, right? They want to talk about this, but none of them have walked through that. So it's all theater. And I think that's sort of the theme of this. How can any of these people talk about the American dream when they've never had to actually go through the process of the American dream? So it's just to, to the... To them, it's all messaging, and it has nothing to do with knowing all the nuances, you know, of what it takes to uh, truly be an American. Um, I would say all of these people are not, frankly, Americans. Their loyalties are not to the American working person. They're to a small uh, set of elite, 0.0001%. And given what just happened in Palestine, um, you'll find out 99.9999% of them are Zionists, and they have more loyalty uh, to Zionism than they do to the American working people. I'm I'm glad that you brought this up because as a former evangelist, hearing that God's chosen people were this select group 
it, it I, but I thought God loved all of us. I thought we were all created equal, but these people are special. Why? And it never made sense to me. And every time I would ask about it to my spiritual advisors, I'd be like, I would hear stay in your lane or some other thing that was very dismissive, or I'd be given some gibberish of an answer. And it never set well for me. And one of the other things that really attracted to me to you, Dr. Shiva, is <laughs> Zionist cocksuckers. <laughs> I never thought I would hear a presidential candidate say that, but it's true. And I admire you for having the balls to say that. Why would you say that, though? Like, I, like that, are you not concerned about the consequences of making a statement like that? Look, Joshua, from where I come from, you know, when I grew up in Jersey, right, and where I come from, even in India or villages, you know, working people don't fuck around and just try to make everything diplomatic. Working people don't have time for that. When you're working a full-time job or more like I do and running for office and trying to change the world, running a movement, you have very little time to figure out the right messaging to bullshit people, you see? And ordinary people don't spend all their time with 20 PR consultants gathering data and saying, this is what you should say. You speak what's real and you speak with a very sharpened tongue because you've realized over time that those in power spend 99.999% of the time, like Satan, right? Manipulating people's uh, brains to make them think they're good people when these people are actually the most dishonest, uh, abusive people on the planet. So in many ways, what may appear like abusive language that I put forward is actually actually the opposite. No different, you know, I could argue then if you look, if you're truly a Christian, Christ took, you know, the cat of nine tails and he whipped the shit out of these guys in the temple. He did it, frankly, out of, if anything, love for them. Um, and, he, and I'm sure he didn't say, please move along, right? I'm sure he used <laughs> abusive words. So everyday people that I grew up in, plumbers, electricians, landscapers, engineers, like my uh, father, you know, when you're working hard, you don't have time. All these people who don't have a job, they spend 90% of their time mimicking other people. Ooh, let me try to be like Obama. Let me try to act like a victim, booby fucking Kennedy, right? Let me try to act like I'm a businessman, Trump, right? So everything they do is an act. And because it's an act, everything is a well-manicured lawn. And even if they try to be anti-establishment, that too is well-manicured because you can look at how they live their lives. Drain the swamp, you bring in John Bolton, right? You talk about locker up, you locked up your followers, right? And so on. So, and you can look at my history. I do what I say, and there's no sort of separation between my words and my deeds. And that's probably true of most American working people. They don't have time to a bullshit. So in that a video that even though with all the shadow banning that went viral, what I said was, you know, um, I am the only presidential candidate who will not suck Zionist cock. That may not sound presidential, but frankly, it's very presidential because I stand for the American worker. So and I bet you every American worker speaks like that. They don't speak like any of those fools on stage, you know, well manicured. They probably spent more money in getting ready for any of those debates with their haircutters and their, you know, whatever treatments they went through than the average American probably makes in a, in a year, frankly. You know, they probably spent 30, 40 grand just getting uh, queued up for one little TV appearance. Yeah, and that's very, very true. And the other thing that I also like, you talked about a movement. 
you're not just running for president. You have a full-time career. Uh, you have a movement. You're it, it's even even if for some reason you are not put on the ballot, even for some reason you don't become the president. It's it's not like one of these situations where you're going to disappear. You have a movement, and you you've inspired people from all uh, every corner of the world. It's not just the United States thing. It's a global movement that you've created. And that is inspiring because it's not easy to do. And where you're coming from in a platform of truth, hard truths, truths that have been shielded from us for years, you are bringing to light these very, very important issues and how we've been controlled, manipulated, and lied to. And I don't believe that we can heal as a country or even a planet until we have truth. And so I admire you a great deal for standing on that truth. Now, I have some questions for you. Are you Just ready? One, one, point, one point on that very important statement that you just made. What's happening now, Joshua, and, and I know we'll probably address this, is that, you know, the Edward Bernays model of advertising was, you know, you reduce a bunch of stuff to a 30-second soundbite, okay? And even in those soundbites, even 20, 30 years ago, when you were watching a TV advertising and someone was trying to tell you, sell you Dove soap versus, I don't know, some other soap, right? You would actually at least get some information and then you would have to do a little bit of work to say, oh, I'm going to choose this because I, they told me it's softer for my skin or, you know, it has no chemicals versus this. You, you went through some process of a hypothesis that you had in your mind. You looked at some data and then you achieved your own conclusion, right? But what's happening now, Joshua, is that the uh, there's a couple of companies who are controlling people's decision making, Google and Facebook. You know, you say, "Oh, who should I vote for?" or, or some presidential candidate, and you just you get given the answer. What should I buy? Right. So what's happening is the average person today is not even going through the process of figuring out what's right for them. And so they're just told this is, oh, you're supposed to like Joe Biden. He's like this. Or you're supposed to like Trump. Or you're supposed to like booby freaking Kennedy. Right. Et cetera. They're, they, they're just, and then they take sides. They don't even know why. <laughs> so if I were to tell you that Trump is patriotic. Oh, yeah, he's patriotic. Why? Oh, because he wears a MAGA hat and he hugged a, a, a flag one day. But no reality check of the fact that he signed SISA into bill. Right. No reality check of the fact that, yeah, you can go down the list. So one of the things that we, our movement is doing, and we're doing the work of what educational institutions no, no longer are doing is teaching people how to think. Thinking means you have an idea in your head, you have to find the facts, and then you come to your conclusion. You say, it's a scientific method. So we're teaching people that. So that's where we're able to, you know, um, basically destroy ignorance. We're able to destroy these, ridiculous ideas that booby fucking Kennedy is for medical freedom or Trump cares about the American people. He's a patriot. And you can go down the list that our movement is exploding all of these and saying, look, you are actually a patriot. You actually care about freedom and truth. These people don't. And, and that is what we're doing. We're ultimately, we're teaching people that they should raise their own self-respect, have dignity for themselves, have dignity for people like me and others who actually work for a living. And this is an abusive relationship that they have when they are even considering any of these morons, a guy who files a falcon, you know, or, you know, falconeering, right? Who bangs 28 women, you know, in, a, in one year and writes a diary about it. Booby fucking Kennedy, by the way, right? Um, that's what we're teaching people. We're teaching people to have dignity for themselves. 
that's fundamentally what we're teaching and how to think, start using their brains to come to a conclusion, actually backing it up with a logical set of facts. How does identity play into that? Well, yeah, so what what's happened is these groups that these people are doing, you plays in on identity, right? And not on reality. So they're basing it on identity. So it's like, you know, you go to the, um, you know, the ice cream store and you see all these flavors or you're on radio and you have country music and you have easy listening, you have 70s. So what the establishment has done is they've literally created channels. And that's what it means. Channel. What is a channel Channeling. that you can corral people down? Oh, OK. All you people who are into medical freedom. We got this fool over here who's, by the way, not into medical freedom. He endorsed Hillary Clinton three times, who's all pro-vaccine, et cetera, right? Booby Kennedy. Oh, all of you white people who want to act like you're Christians and think this guy's a Christian, Trump, we're going to give you Trump. Okay, and over here, we're going to give you a brown-skinned Indian guy who acts like Dr. Shiva, but he was overnight created, right? But he's actually a Brahmin brown-nosed, big pharma brown-noser. We're going to give you that, right? So there, and, and then those of you who want someone who's against the military industrial complex or appears to be, we're going to give you Tulsi Gabbard, who's not actually not against the military industrial complex. So they're literally creating these characters and then they corral people down. But ultimately, if you look behind this board of channels, it all leads back to the establishment. They're just corralling people through one view. And then at the ultimately they say, look, we all got to, we're all one. We all got to work together. So that's how, it's, that's how it's done. So they've, before they used to just have, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats, and they're realizing people are waking up. So they're creating multiple channels of manipulation on the left and the right. So they have Bernie Sanders over here. They have AOC over here, a little bit of a different, you know, it's like chocolate chip. And the other one is, you know, chocolate chip mint, right? So they have all these flavors to drive people, but none of them represent working people. That's true. Well, I want to get into these questions, and I'm I'm so excited to hear what you have to say about them because I believe that they are right in your wheelhouse. For innovation and science policy, we're going to start here. What are your plans to support scientific research in areas often overlooked by the government? Yeah, so let's. It's a great question. Look, in the 1970s, again, none of these other presidential candidates even know about this. 1970 was a big turning point, Joshua, when massive consolidation of power took place between government entities and corporate entities at a fundamental level. This happened with science and innovation. You see, prior to the Mansfield Amendment, you know, in like the 40s and even 30s, um, there used to be a lot of competitive work that used to take place, you know, and um, in terms of basic research. Um, and a lot of that basic research, believe it or not, was done by the military. So if you looked at the entire military budget was massive, a little piece of that, a very little piece, by the way, was a pretty, from a monetary amount was a lot of money, but it was a very small fraction of the military budget was just given to basic research. And what they would do is they would give money to really great scientists and they made sure that they didn't have to beg for money. So if they found some guy had won the Putnam paper, some guy uh, had done some really good work. Uh, he didn't have to claw his way to proving himself. The merits of their work would give them money so they didn't have to keep begging. Okay. When the Mansfield Amendment came after the Vietnam War, 
um, it basically said, look, um, because of the Vietnam War, we don't want military budget going to basic research, right? So all of that money, which may seem like a small portion of the of the military budget, was moved over to two political agencies, the NSF and NIH, which was under the executive branch, okay? And so science essentially became highly politicized. So was no longer funding, even though it came from the military, right? It's a different issue, right? It funded, um, you know, basic research. So go look at Bell Labs, wacky stuff they used to do, right? They Really great stuff came out. That's one piece I want you to hold in mind. The other thing I want you to hold in mind is that when the founders created the United States, they um, created a very strong intellectual property policy and they created patent the patent system, which was fundamentally created for small business people, right? Or so that innovation could occur in the edges, not in big institutions like MIT or Harvard or Silicon Valley, these concentrations of wealth and power. It was so anyone could come up with an idea, patent it, and they made it relatively easy, relatively cost effective, right? And then you had the life of the patent was 20 years, right? For 20 years, and you got royalties out of it. What has happened to, so keep the Mansfield Amendment where there's consolidation of science, where science was controlled by a few agencies. And because of that, starting the 70s till today, um, prior to the 1970s, when you went into academia to do, you did like, they attracted the best people. They attracted, they attracted wacky people with all sorts of wild ideas, right? But now after the 1970s, it became a business that they attracted the people who knew how to do sales, meaning get government grants, how to wheedle their way through the government agencies. So most of the large institutions, you have spineless uh, academics um, who basically are practice the oldest profession now. And then over here, what so that's on the science side. On the innovation side, what ended up happening is that the patent systems also around the 70s and 80s got really screwed up. And this is again, because you have morons in, in, in the house and who never have created anything like Lincoln, by the way, had a patent, you know, uh, Franklin had many patents, right? The founders actually were innovators, right? And it, so what's happened with the patent system as of today is a large, so if you wanna get a patent today and I have to file for them, right? You better have a bunch of money because you file for a patent that costs X, then typically they give you a rejection. It's called an office action. Then you have to file again why you should get the patent. Then they give you another rejection, typically. You have to file again, and they and then you get the final thing. It's called a triple header. It's called reject, reject, approve, and, they, and the patent office makes fees along the way, all right? It's a racket. Wow. So, if you don't, and by the way, in the software patents, they make much more difficult now with a thing called Alice. And I don't have time to get into it, right? So what's happened is who gets software patents, for example, the big guys, Microsoft, Google, and Microsoft and Google and all these big companies want to get rid of patents. They want to make everything trade secrets. Trade secrets means like if you are walking around Microsoft and you say something in the cafeteria, they own it. Okay. So the point is, the large set of three or four companies in tech and Silicon Valley, all the big guys want to actually eliminate patents. And, 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 and one way they're doing that is making it very difficult for the small guys to even get a patent. So over here, innovation is stultified, right? 
And over here, science is basically become a prostitution racket. And, and I'm not being hyperbolic about this, right? And I can give you one example in each area. So if you look at literally, people should just Google Alzheimer's fraudulent research, um, University of Minnesota. You'll find this professor for 16 years, 16 years ago. He wrote a paper about his theory of Alzheimer's, directing the entire industry to a certain direction. That paper had images in it, biological images called Western blot images, absolutely photoshopped. The guy moved the entire US NIH funding, $3.7 billion, because every Tom, Dick, and Harry cited his paper. Why? Because he was a big wig in the field and he was, you know, also a journal editor. Now, let me tell you why this is important. If you are a young scientist and you get accepted, you get your professorship in some institution, you have seven years to get tenure. What is tenure? Tenure means that you have to do, re after seven years of you doing research, the institution will decide, are we going to give, let's say, Joshua a job for life? It's a job for life. They can't fire you. You get a salary for life. You get insurance. You get everything. You're treated like royalty. Okay? It's called tenure. So during those seven years, how do you get tenure? Okay, so you have to take a field that you become a specialist in. Let's say I'm in this field of AI robots for you know, walking bipedal robots. Okay, that's your field. You have to publish papers in that field. Seven years after that, the institution will say, okay, Josh, we're going to judge you now. How do they judge you? They look at how many people cited your papers. Not that you, you may have published a thousand papers, but no one else may have cited you. Why citation is important. The theory is citations reveal that you did great work. Others have to cite you. Okay. Um, like Einstein's work is has probably one of the most number of citations, right? So on. But in order to get those citations, what do you do? Nowadays, you have to go kiss ass to all the other people. So it's, it's becoming an ass kissing game. That's one piece of it. The other piece is, so you have to go ass kiss to the other people in, let's say, bipedal robots who are leaders. And whenever you write a paper, you have to cite them. It's just quid, even though maybe a shitty paper, even though their paper may be directing the field in the wrong direction, because if you don't cite them, your stuff doesn't get published. Okay, that's one thing. The other issue is the heads of the scientific departments in the field, the heads of the journal editors in the field all sit on the board of the review committees for the National Science Foundation and the NIH, which decides when you apply a grant application who gets a grant. So if you don't ask kiss to these people, you're not going to get a grant, which means you're not going get to get any money to hire graduate students to do the research because you need to get papers published because professors get their papers done with graduate students. So that's why this guy got away with it for 16 years. And it's quite incredible. So science has become this old boy network of publishing shit that really doesn't is not revolutionary because if you're truly revolutionary, you're gonna expose all these people, they're not gonna allow you to publish their stuff, okay? So the quote unquote peer review process has become highly, highly incestuous. And I notice that you know, when I have to write a paper, I don't know anyone. So my papers have to be really good for them to get published, right? I mean, really, really good. Um, and I typically go find a domain expert who's already tenured, you say, 
who doesn't need, like basically they can mouth off and that's why we've been successful. But so what's happened is science has become really not great science. It has become a prostitution racket. And over here, we've stultified innovation through the patent process. And the other thing, Joshua, and these are all the problems, is we think innovation comes from centers of innovation. So MIT spends $10 billion in their Kendall Square Center. And their idea is, okay, in a small, you know, 100-yard, you know, square area, we're going to put all these companies, we're going to get all the venture capitalists there. And then, boom, one Google will come out and we're going to say, aren't we great? It's called creating these quote unquote centers of innovation, right? And the reality is that we're not doing any great innovation. And the truth is that great innovation really does not come from centers. It actually comes from the edges. Dennis Noble, who was a professor at MIT uh, of history and science, he showed this quite effectively. Um, there was a Michigan mechanic in Michigan who actually is the one who came up with the automatic windshield wiper, which is a control system, right? It feels the rain, it has a sensor, and it knows how to wipe. Well, a couple of MIT professors, he did an essay, actually stole it from him. And they created the MIT Control System Center. So he tracked back the history of innovation to someone who's doing it out of his, truly out of his garage, not like, oh, I'm doing it out of my garage, to act like I'm doing it out of my garage, right? Like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. So this guy actually was a bottoms-up person. I created email long before I came to MIT in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey. And I you know, recently went back to um, <clears throat> MIT. I was invited by the students to give a talk. And I spent most of the talk talking about the invention of email because when the story came out and went to Smithsonian, my biggest enemy was MIT. I was on the front page of MIT when I created many things while I was at MIT, Joshua. But when the news went into Smithsonian, they were my biggest detractors because email was created before I came to MIT. That's what all, most of these academics are spineless oh individuals God. who actually are not that bright. They got there because they know how to suck cock, okay? They really do, Zionist cock or otherwise, okay? And that's what happened in Hollywood, in art, in science, in technology. So we don't get the best people anymore. And you can see it in politics, all right? So what's the solution? Well, number one, the Mansfield Amendment should be repealed, right? The other thing that should happen is we should eliminate tenure. We should not fund any, sorry, to be specific, any of these institutions which are getting federal funds um, and supporting tenure anymore. Tenure should, you, you, you should, it should be, you go to an institution for seven years, okay? Then get the fuck out and go get a job. Because many of these professors think they know it all. They literally are a caste system, like the Indian priesthood, right? And they think they know a lot, but they actually don't know a lot. They're very uh, insecure individuals, most of them. So the tenure system must be taken out. And the way you do that is you don't uh, finance, you don't give uh, money to any of these institutions who have tenure anymore, which includes Harvard, MIT, Yale, Stanford, all these people, right? So you have to eliminate tenure. We have to have very, very criminal laws against academics who are journal editors and who sit at the head of the department and who are making decisions on who gets money. That's a massive conflict of interest. Would you create a bill to protect inventors? So like say yeah. a kid from the inner cities or well, anywhere well, that's not part of one of these organizations? Yeah, are so it goes at the root of evil is these hedge funds and these venture capitalists, you see? 
So what the hedge funds and venture capitalists do is they go to like pension funds and they get their money. And then, and they say, we're going to give you 30% return because we're going to go, we're smart. We know how to invest in companies. They're not doing anything. All they're doing is an insider trading game. They just go and invest in their old friends in Silicon Valley. They create the companies that quote unquote succeed. You see? So the, the root of all this is that these large hedge funds and these large VCs, we need to cut their nuts off where it begins and not give them all of these tax breaks that they get because they're not really doing anything innovative except moving money among their own inner circles. You say yeah. that's one of the, we need to go at the source of this. Um, and I have, you know, so that's one, but the other thing that needs to happen is um, the patent process needs to be made much easier for everyday people, right? Right now they're huge patent firms, right? Who spend a ton of money. So I think the way you do that is a patent office is running a rack. And a patent, you need a lot of money to get a patent, right? So that's one of the things that really needs to be revamped right there. And um, we should make sure that, you know, what, what Google and uh, Microsoft and Facebook are doing to try to uh, end the patent game uh, doesn't occur. Because pat the patent process that was created by the founders is quite extraordinary. To give you an idea, 30,000 companies... Uh, Fucker Carlson, you know, Glenn Greenwald ever asks him about that, right? Because all these people are being, they're all part of the same clique. They all go to the same clubs. They all bang the same people. They're not one of us, Joshua. That's what's really going on. So they let, a, let themselves get away with all these crimes. So I have to do this dirty job of exposing these fuckers, you know, and no one else will, but that's what they're doing. They're not doing innovation. So, but that guy is still out. Why is he even running for president? He should be in jail, in my view, right? Well, I'm sure. It was a pump and dump scheme.
but that should be centered on mainstream media. Instead, they're trying to make this guy some, you know, he's a brown-skinned, big pharma, brown noser who's a bullshitter. And it's it's really a disgraceful that none of these quote unquote people ask him about this. And there's many other stuff like this. But see, that's not innovation. That's bullshitting. Yeah. It's just pure bullshit. We haven't solved major problems like fusion. We should have fusion energy by now, okay? Which is the ability to create what the sun does. And in fact, people have shown some quite interesting phenomena with cold fusion, right? So we're not really doing major innovation, you know? And the great innovation that does occur at the edges actually gets suppressed and made invisible by two or three of these centers for innovation. That's what's going on. It's a racket. Wow. I could talk to you about that for a day, but let's go to, let's talk about digital rights and privacy. How would you balance the need for national security with protecting citizens' digital privacy in today's data-driven world? Yes, it's a great, great question. Um, you know which institution did this, Joshua? Oh. So there was, so again, go back to the founders. These people are quite extraordinary people. And it's going to sound may sound anachronistic, but it was the United States Postal Service. So let me explain. When the Postal Service was created, Franklin, by the way, was the Postmaster General for the Crown before the Revolution. What is the Postal Service? The Postal Service was the ability, you know, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have faxes, we didn't have all this digital stuff. So even the British, the British monarchs set up this way to transfer mail right communication and when the revolution after the revolution in 17 i think 87 or 91 the founders created something called the united states postal service why because they wanted to have privacy they wanted to enable keyword is enable the first amendment to become real and they wanted free speech to equal free reach not what elon musk is saying free speech or the adl the adl and and Elon Musk are saying the same thing to Zionists, that free speech is not free reach. It's completely ant antithetical to the spirit and what the founders wanted, okay? So when they set up the Postal Service, the idea was I could send you a letter, you could send your mother a letter, anyone could send anyone communications at pennies. And they created this entire phenomenal infrastructure to do that. Even today, the Postal Service is quite extraordinary. We don't give them enough credit, okay? Half a million people, you get a letter, it makes it to the other place. But most importantly, they created, the founders created a, pol a police force for the Postal Service. Very few people know this. So they created a police force in the IG's office, right? That would ensure that if you're a postman and I send a letter and you open up my letter, and you watch it, it's 22 year sentence in prison. Okay. So they created, you know, and by the way, the Postal Service is a quasi organization. It recognizes communication must be done for the people, by the people. That's why you have these little post offices in every little town. It's quite extraordinary. And these post offices would do everything they would do banking. You could do all sorts of things, right? And, and you could get your passport, right? They, they really were the center for doing all sorts of transactions very important transactions, but your privacy was premier. 
forget encryption, forget all this thing of blockchain and all this shit, right? Which is all can be busted by better and better computing. They had these very powerful framework of laws which said, hey, if you violate someone's privacy, you go to prison for 22 years. And they had this police force, right? It was enforced. It's quite fascinating. So but up until 1787 to all the way to 1970, nearly 70% of the communications that went through this very powerful infrastructure was political communications. Right wing, left wing, Nazis would communicate, communists, you know, Green Party. And no one were no one was outed, okay? Because you had constitutionally this framework, which was, and no one talks about it, which is an adjunct to the First Amendment. The First Amendment has no teeth without the Postal Service. Think about it. The First Amendment has no teeth because I can send you a letter, I can communicate. It's really the internet before the internet, or it's email before email, okay? So what happened? was in 1970, 1997, you know, between 1970 and 1993, and I know this as the inventor of email, email was really an intranet application used in the offices. You'd connect up a bunch of computers and you ran email. When the web came in 1993, this is when really the problems start because the postal service didn't do their job. The postal service was put into framework to enable the free communications of people. It was at that time, you know, you had paper, but that's that wasn't, they, these idiots forgot what they were doing. So 1997, email volume overtook postal mail volume. Postal mail volume came down. And I was running my second life in email was I created a company to automatically analyze the email and route it for customer service. We were, you know, the, you know, number one company in that space. And I met with postal service in 1998 seven, I said, look, this is very dangerous. And I did it as a public service. I met with the executives of the post office. I said, you guys must create a public version of email, or for that matter, social media services, just like, you know, you have postal mail and you have FedEx, right? Mm -hmm. But that would be protected by the laws of the constitution. They said, who are you? You're a 29 year old kid. You don't know anything. Why don't you move along? You know, we're in the postal mail business. And we have a half a million people who work for us. We're bigger than Walmart. Basically, get the fuck out, okay? Well, 14 years later, in 2011, the Postal Service is going out of business. They're saying we're not making any more revenue. What happened to the Postal Service? It was gutted. All the high-valued first-class mail went to FedEx and DHL, thanks to Reagan, because of the people who funded him. So they started gutting the Postal Service. And in 1997, private companies, social media, email companies, Hotmail, Yahoo, Gmail came out and they would give you free email. Remember? Yeah. So everyone signed up for free email, forgetting to read the terms and conditions where these companies own your email. You don't have the protection of the constitution anymore, right? Wow. These companies literally own your email. They. This is where it began. And I was the first one to see this and call it out. Oh my God. So in my view... You know, even if you look at blockchain, ooh, we have blockchain. Well, the communication between me and you through the blockchain is still done through their infrastructure, which is now owned by private companies. Certain things, Joshua, must be owned by the people, like air should be owned by all of us, okay? Right? The highway system. Certain, in my view, these things are public infrastructure. So this is a solution. Number one, 
if I'm communicating with you right now, the communication is relying on either Vodafone, AT&T, T-Mobile, or Verizon. If they don't like me, click, I'm gone, okay? That's ultimately the wiring, right? So we don't have an alternative to that, but there is an alternative. And I wrote a paper on this back in, Jesus, 10 years ago. Um, we need to create our own public networks owned by the people for the people called mesh networks, Ooh. okay? So you can use AT&T Verizon, but it's peer-to-peer -peer mesh networks. And the technology has existed for this now over a decade to do this. So we become the network, number one. And on that network, we run our applications brought to you. If the post, This is what I would, I would force the Postal Service to do this. You give people the YouTube, the equivalent, the Facebooks, et cetera. Now, if you want to use the private companies, great. But when you use this, guess what? No one can throw you off. It's protected just like physical mail. And if anyone interferes, 22-year sentence in prison. This is the actual solution. It is not, tech, I know you're speaking to a technologist. Ooh, Bitcoin, ooh, blockchain. Well, when quantum computing comes, they're going to be able to break prime factorization and you don't have your quote-unquote encryption. Every time you do one level of encryption, there's a faster computer which can break it. So it's not technology. We actually have to have policies here. And what I'm saying is the founders already had it, but you have a bunch of idiots who don't know anything about technology so they don't even know why the founders did this. And the reason, again, it gets back to what you started out. How can any of these people talk about us when they don't know us? How can any of these people even comprehend be in the founders' brains because they've never created anything? So when I talk about this, I'm living the life of a Franklin or a Jefferson or Washington because these guys created stuff. And they knew the power of why you needed the Postal Service which is really a public information infrastructure. It wasn't just sending mail out. And we don't have a public information infrastructure right now. What we do have is that the government now tells social media companies who to silence, and that's what my lawsuit discovered, okay? Yeah. And the government, and that was long before Twitter files, which again, Glenn Greenwald, Fucker Carlson concealed. My lawsuit, and same with Jim Jordan and Thomas Massey and all these people, <laughs> So on November 16th, 2018, it was Donald fucking Trump who signed into law the Cybersecurity you know, uh, Infrastructure Security Agency Act. CISA got created, which basically obliterated the First Amendment. So CISA gets created under the front end. Oh, we need to protect us from foreign people, foreign communications. But what it did was they created this entire infrastructure which allows government to have a direct connection to social media companies and tell them to throw off people like me and you, which is what they did in 2020. Mm -hmm. Because I was exposing the Secretary of State of Massachusetts. It was government who told social media companies what to do. This is quite profound. It was government that did this. Yep. So now, and so, and we are all relying on these private companies right now, right? And when a private, so here's the conundrum. This is what's very powerful what they've done. A private company can throw you off because they, they too are, have First Amendment rights. So Facebook can say, oh, we don't like Josh. We're throwing him off. Oh, you threw me off. Well, I'm a, it's my company. I can throw you off. Get the fuck out, right? Like I can throw someone out of my building here. But government is telling them what to do. You see, so they're getting a double whammy. So you say, well, you know, uh, 
Facebook threw me, oh, well, you know, Facebook can do it, but guess who actually threw them off government? And then government can say, we didn't do it. They can hide. You know, we told them to throw it and they made their own decision. So we are really screwed in this sense. So the only way out of it is number one, the 2016 Cybersecurity Information Security Act must be repealed, okay? And a lot of people need to go to jail on this. In fact, I would every congressman unanimously voted, including Thomas Massey and Jim Jordan. It was a unanimous vote. So all you, Thomas Massey is like, you know, they get a few black people or a few Indian people, you know, to be professors. He's a fucking token constitutionalist, acts like he's a constitutionalist. I live in Kentucky. I have my farm, this bullshit. Okay. But he voted for the creation of CISA. It was unanimous. Every member of the house. So all of them are traitors to the U.S. Constitution, every single one of them. So the way out of this is we must repeal CISA. We must re, and I have the plan for it. I actually wrote it because after I critiqued the postal office in 2011, when they were going out of business, the postal inspector general heads up the police force hired me. And he said, Shiva, why are you attacking us? And I gave him two reports. They've implemented none of it. So I have the solution, which is the postal service needs to be re-engaged, number one, to do their real job. We need to create mesh networks, networks by the people, for the people. So we own the piping end to end. And then we need to make sure that uh, CISA is repealed. That's what needs to happen. So it's very three tangible things. Without that, it's not going to be like technology is going to help us. Technology never helps us, Joshua. When you What technology does in the wrong hands, it actually consolidates power much faster. And that's what keeps happening. It sounds like you're built. You're talking about a digital underground railroad for as a solution to well, social it exists. and everything that's else. What the, that's what the postal service was. Yeah. The U.S. Postal Service was created because a crown was opening up all of our letters. So the postal service said, "No, if you open up a letter, you go to prison." Now that framework should be applied in the in the public realm to, to our communication. And by the way, all these postal services are perfect nodes for a mesh network. Why? Because they already have the physical infrastructure. You just put a server there, put an antenna up, and we create our own people's own mesh network. We, um, I just watched a YouTube video earlier today talking about how we, I'm going to say this word wrong, subsidize China for mailing because China can ship products over here for no cost. And the question is how? They're cheap products. How do we do that? Yeah. Our government is subsidizing Forgive me how I said that. Subsidizing, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Our government is doing that for China. Isn't that, after everything you've just said, and then that little nugget, that makes this a very messy situation with our uh, U.S. Postal Service, does it not? Yeah, look, the Postal Service is basically one of the most abused institutions and the most um, really powerful institution that doesn't get the credit they deserve. Jeff Bezos uses abuses the postal service, right? The only reason he's making all this money is because of the postal service. Okay. And by the way, when Trump was in office, I met with his doofus son, Trump Jr. And I said, look, I have a plan to save this. And he said, go talk to Charlie Kirk, who's another idiot. I mean, it's really fucked up how these people really are. They're a bunch of morons. And, you know, they would hang out at the Trump thing, just drinking and hanging out in their little cliques. They don't give a fuck about solving anything. They perpetuate stuff. 
And their goal is to then create a, a controversy and then they both sides make money sending emails on, oh, he hates me, she hates me. You see, that's what's going on. But the solution to this privacy issue is not gonna come from technology. And I'll put that in writing. It's going to come from policy. Wow. One of the other things that really inspired me about you is hearing your, about your grandparents and your family, your, your sister, your brother, yourself, that education is obviously very, very important. Um, you're at five degrees from MIT, but your, your sister is accomplished. Like your family is very accomplished. It's a very it's inspiring to me to see what your family has done. So I know education is important, but our educational system is a mess. And I do know that there's a lot of good-hearted people that are working to find solutions. So this next subject is education reform for the 21st century. What are your ideas for updating our education system to meet the demands of a modern global economy and a technological advancements? Yeah, it's a great question, Joshua. So there used to be this concept of the one-room schoolhouse, right? And in that model, the teacher would have, you know, let's say it was eighth grade, right? Everyone went to that one-room schoolhouse. Think about what it was, quite fascinating. And so you had kids who were six years old, five, whatever, seven years old, all the way up to kids who were let's say 18 years old, right? Or 10, whatever the age differences were. And so the teacher would have a curriculum and it was personalized to all these students and one student would also teach the other student. You say, it's quite fascinating. So they, so, and again, this was decentralized, all right? And you had faith in the teachers mm -hmm. to figure out what was right. You, you pushed it down to the teachers. So the teachers could figure out what was right for the student. So you had intelligent teachers who would say, wow, this student, you know, he studies, I don't know, he get, he doesn't understand negative numbers really that well, you know, and he's getting lost there and this student understands it better. So I'm going to pair them together. I have to do a different kind of curriculum, you say? So it was personalized, but you put the power in the teacher. Very, very important because a lot of people went into teaching because they really enjoy teaching and they love when a student gets it. It's like a really, if you teach and I, I you know, I've taught for years, um, the, the greatest thing that you feel as a teacher is when you find a student who gets what you're talking about. You say it's a really amazing satisfaction. And then that teacher can teach others. All right. That was really the concept of the apprentice, you know, mentor model. Right. That's where this originally comes from. So what we've done is we've removed the teacher's power. And again, this also occurred in the 1970s because we created this organization called the Department of Education. All right. Um, the other thing that also happened was um, advances in science took place. One of the biggest advances was to start looking at the world as complex systems. And so while reading, writing, and arithmetic are important, even before that is we need to teach people how to think from a systems perspective, how the ankle bone is connected to the foot bone. 90% of doctors don't know this. They're basically morons. When you go to a doctor, he's looking at, He's a specialist. He doesn't see your body as a whole. He doesn't know that if you have a problem in your eyes, maybe it's connected to your liver, which by the way, it is. Okay. Um, and so on. You know, your organ systems are not just separate systems, right? Things are connected to each other. Okay. Like jaundice is liver, for example, right? Um, and then there's many, many interconnection between 
emotions and different subsystems. But systems thinking is what engineers learn. Plumbers learn systems thinking, right? Otherwise, you are not going to be, or electricians do. You can't suddenly say, I'm just going to bring in, I'm going to upgrade a house's electrical system by 1,000 amps. Oh, I also have to do other things, right, in the house, right? So we are not training people to think from a systems perspective. So one of the fundamental things that needs to happen is the educational system must teach people how to think from a systems perspective. The good thing is that curricula, I used to teach it at MIT, only the elites learn systems thinking now, Joshua. So we have a two-tier system now. The elites learn systems thinking, which is a very powerful knowledge base, and they're using this to manipulate everyone else. So about 10,000 people in the world know systems thinking, which really came out of the 1930s to 1950s, but they keep it to themselves. My view is systems thinking needs to be brought broadly taught. Now, instead of waiting for other people, I've already started teaching it. People go to truthfreedomhealth.com. We teach people how to think from a systems perspective. You know, um, I know you're recording this, but John will play it before we end, you know, but this systems approach um, is what I used to teach to the elite students, but I've made it like Prometheus bringing fire to the earth of, of accessible to everyone. So as president, I would you know, use the White House to teach people how to think of systems, you say, and you'd use it as a bully pulpit, but that's one of the most fundamental things that needs to happen. People need to be able to see the world as interconnections, and there are nine principles that I can teach anyone that people need to learn, and then they can understand the world as a system. So when they're looking at a problem, they don't get into this divisive, dualistic world, you say? Mm -hmm. So if they look at, oh, should, should I support the pandemic or not? It's not about pro or anti-vaccine. It's about recognizing you need to boost the immune system. That's where it really goes. And one set of people want to weaken people's immune system, so you got to get artificial immunity, which you can call a vaccine. And that's what this is about. So you, if you take any problem, once people start learning system science, you literally become a very powerful individual. Those in power do not want to teach systems to people. They also do not want the teacher being able to personalize education at the ground level. Now, the wealthy let you do that in the elite schools, right? Yeah. So you pay a lot of money and then you get your small teaching groups. But they don't, it's really funny, the same super wealthy people who talk about diversity and inclusivity they reserve personalized teaching for their kids, small classrooms, and the teacher figures out. But the rest of the other people, poor white people, poor blacks, poor brown people, they have to go to these public education systems where it's one size fits all. And, and they can't. And so what's happened out of that process is you, you don't get teachers who really enjoy teaching, right? You don't get the personalized teaching that students deserve. And people clearly not learning to system sync. So again, a two-tier system. One system for the elites, they learn how to think from a systems perspective. They they learn about systems. They get personalized knowledge, personalized tutoring, and the rest of the people remain in the dark. It's literally a caste system. That's what they've done. The swarm wants to have these two tiers in everything we can talk about. And it starts with education. And to your point, Joshua, you know, when I was growing up in India, my there's a I, I should find that picture. There's a wonderful picture of my mother you know, this dark-skinned Indian woman with all these light-skinned Indian men. She was, here was this non-Brahmin Indian woman in the deep South, like, be like Mississippi, right? A black woman in Mississippi gets to go to school with all white dudes, okay, at Harvard. Not, not even at Harvard, right? Some, 
And that was my mom. And she was quite extraordinary, right? And my dad grew up in war-torn Burma with nothing. He didn't see his first book. I think it was 10 or 12. So my parents had a great regard for education because to them, it was a way out of their slavery. So that was pounded into me. And I want to pound that into people. The only way out of this slavery is knowledge, but the right knowledge to destroy ignorance. And that is system thinking. That is individual, you know, one-on-one. I mean, I still teach every day, man. Thursdays, everyone should come to our open house. They're great. 11 a.m. or 8 p.m. I spent probably eight hours and I don't think any other presidential candidate will do that or give me money for it. We do it free, free, 8 a.m., sorry, 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. EST. We teach people how to take care of their body. We teach people how to do local farming and, and buy locally. We teach people how to think systems. We teach people the seven secrets of innovation. And we don't charge anyone anything, Joshua, absolutely free. You don't even ask for donations. What's up? I never. Yes. Yeah, so here's the deal. Um, you know, fucking Kennedy, a billionaire trust fund bitch, right? Is give me money, right? I need to get on the ballot, give me 15 million because a, he doesn't have any ground support. Everyone for him needs money. He needs money. Why? So he could get, you know, his wife Botoxed so he could make sure everyone coming to his home. Uh, so he could bang another 28 women and, you know, in some Swiss chalet, wherever the hell, you know what I'm saying? These people are sickos. And it's what, so everyone needs to recognize, why are you giving these people money? You have, the average American maybe has $400 for a rainy day. Why are you taking $100 and writing it to Trump? Who has a golden plated toilet? Why are you giving it to a guy who, you know, trains Falcons? Okay. Let me throw a baseball at him and see if he can even catch it. Okay. Falconeering. That's, that's the, that's the sport of the Saudis, right? The sport of kings. And so this is what people need to get in their head. Yeah, I have not asked for, in fact, when people give me a donation because of how I was brought up, I give them stuff. You give me something, I give you courses. You give me something, I don't feel right taking because I know, again, it comes back to who I am. I know what it takes to make money, how hard it is, how frugal you have to be to survive. So when someone is willing to give me money, I better give them something. If they're giving me money, okay, here's a bumper sticker. Okay, here's System and Revolution. Here's my course because you're going to, uh, uh, you know, we do leadership training. We don't charge anything. So these people are all scumbags. They don't know what giving really means. They have no idea of being an unselfish human being. But where I grew up, where ordinary people grew up, we survive by helping one another. The ethos is already there. We don't need blockchain to help each other. We already help each other. So this is what people need to get in their heads. The incentive models were already there. Yeah. Right? So this is what I'm saying. None of these people have any fucking idea what I'm talking about. They think I'm stupid. You're stupid. We're suckers because we give away stuff. That um, I'm not, I in this hour that I've been speaking, I've been saying, give me money. I need donation. I need donation. They think we're dumb. I, I do. I, I don't have this question planned, but because we're talking about education, uh, kids with unique needs are uh, something I, I care deeply about because I was one of those kids. But we have a rise of children that have ASD and other mental health issues, some that were caused by the shutdown. 
some caused by, I'm not going to say these things because I don't want to get us kicked off. Um, but we have a lot of kids now that have, that are underdeveloped. They have special needs, they have unique needs. And yet we don't have, we have teachers that are not qualified to be able to assist them. Uh, the school that my, my partner, Jessica teaches at, they're understaffed and they have all of these kids that have needs that they can't get to. They've got people doing the jobs of 10 people. So I got a question. My question is, what would, what is your plan or idea for the educational system where now funding is in crisis? We've got all of these issues with getting the right teachers, the, the specialized teachers. Is it, is homeschool a solution for your idea and how to revamp the educational system? Or do you think we can do this in a public school education system and actually have it work? Yeah, Josh, you're asking a good question. Let's just sort of take a step back and say, what is the purpose of this education? Okay. What are the, first of all, what are they getting educated and what is the purpose? Okay. So, you know, if you go back to my grandparents' time, I think my grandmother may have second grade education. My grandfather had maybe third grade, you know, my parents were the first ones in their village to get educated, but why did they get quote unquote educated? It was, and why do they not get educated? What education did they have? Well, they were farmers. They knew how to plant seeds. They had tremendous skills actually, right? They knew how to, my great grandfather could do math in his head on one sixteenth, you know, fractional math, right? Because that's how you had to work when you were dealing with farming stuff or doing building, et cetera, right? So people learned all these skills, not by physically going to some institution, by the realities of what they needed, they learned this educational stuff that they needed, right? So my grandfather knew exactly when to plant, you know, how to do inventory management, right? Because right, he would have to get rice and how he'd have to pack it, right? How to do preservation of food, right? Um, all sorts of skills, probably like thousands of skills he knew versus a guy who went to college today and what skill do they really know? So we have to go back and realize what is a skill set. The ed goal of education is to give people skills so now they could go into the world and have a prosperous life, right? I learned how to program by the time I was 14 years old. I got a full-time job. I didn't need to go to fucking MIT. <laughs> MIT benefited from me, seriously. In retrospect, they found me I didn't even know about the place. They used my knowledge that I got from these public school teachers, and then they gave me the MIT degree to act as though they did something for me. See what's going on? Wow. So think about what I'm saying. Yeah. These big institutions are actually almost like a education trafficking organizations. They're finding already the best people, and they sucker them in to say, ooh, I... I got MIT now, right? And a lot of students, you know, when I gave this talk at MIT, this kid said 90% of the kids here are very depressed because their parents pushed them to get in these institutions and that was the goal, okay? So it seems like the goal of a lot of this primary school education is to get you into a big school and then you're done. So parents are spending tens of thousands of dollars to hire consultants to make sure Johnny learns this and this and this so he can apply and get his... SAT scores well and write as essays. So the whole thing has become a racket for these big institutions who are already getting good people that they put the brand on. In fact, 
in the seventies, you know, when we had really good teachers and we were at the tail end of it, my teachers worked three jobs. And I've, I've shared this before. My chemistry teacher won the best public school teacher. He worked as a general contractor, as a carpenter and as a teacher. And he put two of his kids through school. That's the only way he could do it. But he was the most amazing chemistry teacher. All right. So point is, I actually learned stuff. I didn't need to go to MIT. I, I could have gotten a job as a, when I came to MIT, by the time I was 20, I bought my own home because I would go to MIT and I was still doing my own jobs, you know, full time. So what is the purpose of education? That's the first thing we got to think about. Well, you could talk, talk about it. Well, is it teaching you to be a good human being? Is it teaching you life skills? How to get up, how to eat properly, how to dress, how to, you know, behave in the world, right? How to be respectful. There's that ethical conduct, right? Is it teaching you that? Is it teaching you how to survive in life, right? How to create a little to-do list, right? How to write a nice email, right? How to interact with people. And you got to find, you know, John will tell you, you know, my assistant, because my parents didn't teach me this, my educational said, I had to teach him that. And I have had to do this with hundreds and hundreds of employees because they didn't learn it. So life skills, how to survive, how to be resourceful. Do you know how to be resourceful? You only have $20, right? How are you going to stretch that almost like $2,000? Do you, do you have the skills on how to do that? You see, to me, that's what my grandparents knew, resourcefulness. You have a little bit. How do you survive with that? And then do you actually have tangible skills? Okay, do you know how to measure something? Do you know how to do the Pythagorean theorem? So if you have to calculate something, do you know how to do surveying, right? Do you actually, what are the set of skills you have? Can you program, right? Do you know how to start a printer and turn it on? A friend of mine literally had a woman that she hired, big, large corporation, and the young girl said, oh, the printer's not working. And she said, oh, did you check the printer for paper? She goes, oh, how do you do that? Okay. I'm, what I'm saying is everything is being packaged, including getting into these big institutions. Mama and Papa are teaching them how to pass the SATs. And then when the kid gets there, so we have to really go back and think about that, right? So what I'm saying is we really have to look at by the, these ages, what skills do these kids have? actual skills. And I think that's what needs to be talked about, Joshua. Now, once you identify that, there's many ways to teach those skills. You could have homeschooling, right? Where, you know, parents teach it, communities teach it, right? It, do it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to school, right? What are the skill sets we want to have, right? And then you figure out what these purpose of these schools are. But to me, it's all about these skill sets. And it can be done through homeschooling. It can be done online. Some people may want to learn on their own. Some people need one-on-one -on -one connection. But I think that's what needs to be done. And everyone says, oh, the, the, the quote-unquote fake anti-establishment, oh, I'm going to blow up the Department of Education. Okay, but what is your actual program? So I would say there's a set of skills that I think are very, very important. How are you going to deploy those skills, right? That's the second thing. How do you do this? And I would argue many of these things do not require a lot of massive amounts of infrastructure, okay? That you could do, you could have teachers having the ability to deploy to kids directly, online, offline, in a bunch of ways, and they get compensated for doing that. 
And you basically make all these teachers essentially become their own educational institutions. You know, direct, just like you have direct democracy, direct one-on-one. -on -one. And that's already happening on its own. And so it's not like you need to put more money into this. You, you, can, you can leverage a lot of these technologies. They don't even teach shop class anymore. Really? Yeah, there's no shop class. There's no home economics class. I don't know if you know that. I no, I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, I still have skills on how to use a saw, a hammer, how to nail in a nail, you know, how to do things with a dowel, all this stuff I learned in eighth grade. How many, you know, so there the again, this was sort of the tail end because before um this was when we really had teachers that cared. Mm -hmm. So um I think you just you just what you just said was music to the ears of so many educators, people that are going to independent media, people that are just tired of the, the way that the system works. They're going off on their own. You just, I think you just spoke life into all of those people because yeah, you gave them hope. What we're going to be doing is, you know, I have a building here in Cambridge. You know, my birthday's coming up this Saturday. We're going to invite people to come, but we're going to announce that I'm going to literally launch an academy um, that, and we already are doing it, you know, with teaching people system science, mm -hmm. we teach people so much shit, man. It's crazy. Right. But it's just a bunch of people said, Shiva, I didn't learn any of this stuff in high school. I didn't know how to write a proper email. I didn't know how to keep a to-do list. I didn't know how to use my calendar. Right. I mean, these are extraordinary life skills I'm talking about yeah. and more. I didn't know how to think from a systems perspective. So we're going to start deploying these and making it very, very affordable for people. But these are knowledge systems that once people learn, they're very powerful. Like even in interpersonal communications in an organization, you tell someone to do something, they go, how many times does this has occurred? They go do something and it's nothing what you told them to do, right? <laughs> so how do you do a, commu a proper communication that both parties know this was the instruction, this is the acknowledgement, and, you, and that's, it may seem simple, but these are the things that distinguish very successful organizations and or societies versus unsuccessful societies. Having respect for someone who actually knows knowledge, you know, this apprentice mentor model. Every Tom, Dick and Harry on social media thinks they know something and they don't. You know, they need to be, quote unquote, slapped upside the head like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. Shut the fuck up and listen, you know. This we need to bring this in, and our goal is when we launch this, we're going to create students and people who are a hundred times more successful just by the way they come out of these programs, right? I mean, our truth, freedom, and health system is creating people who are blowing up Kennedy, exposing Trump, and really going at them and teaching people what the right thing. So, we were, we're already doing a great service during the pandemic. The immune system courses I ran save literally hundreds of millions of people's lives you know videos that i did that got taken down you know they went viral all over the world and people write to me hey i was in the icu and i told the doctor to give my mother my father you know vitamin c direct and it saved his life right or i was in the i was about to go to the icu and i took a heavy dose of vitamin d3 and uh, a and, and and it saved me right so we want to teach people skills we're in fact going to start a program which is about how you can be your own doctor and it's using system science. So that's what we're going to do. But once you understand system science, you can use it to everything, but that's what we're going to do. And then create it in such a way that 
you can take these and you can go teach it, learn, teach, and serve model. That's that's our goal. I love it. This next subject is ethics and AI and technology, which is a huge hot topic right now. Everyone's talking about, it, especially what happened with ChatGBT or OpenAI. So the question is, how will you address ethical issues in AI and technology, particularly in sectors like healthcare, defense, and employment? It's a great question. First of all, you know, just to give people the background, you know, I'm, I'm, I have three of the most important patents in tech-based AI since 1997. So I've been an AI researcher since 14. Okay, and when I used to do a lot of this stuff for looking at sleep patterns and predicting stuff. So AI, fundamentally, very simply put, it's a big word. It's basically pattern recognition. What AI means is using machines. That's one way, or using something to do either a repetitive or a complex task that, um, you know, that was typically a very large complex task. Okay. So let me explain. So you could argue when Henry Ford created the manufacturing engine, that was AI because he took a, he took a human being, right. And he made them into a robot. So people think AI has to do with physical machines. AI has been going on for a long time. When you take a human and you convert them to a robot, that's AI. It could be in carbon-based being and a silicon-based being broadly. So once we could take a human being and said, okay, all your job is to just put nuts, a nut on this wheel. Then we said, okay, we got that doing it. Then we figured out, we watched how that person did it. And then we injected a machine to doing it, right? And then we started building more complex machines, but you can make a human being, a human being is a machine. But you can make them, quote unquote, AI by making them robots, right? And that was what some parts of the industrial era did do, dehumanize humans. So once you understand what AI is, ultimately it's about taking a body of knowledge, transferring that body of knowledge to some somebody else or some other object, and then making sure that it gets robust at doing that. Now, that transfer of knowledge is called training data, okay? And it can be unsupervised or supervised training. Either you have to train it and watch it, observe it, or some tasks a system can learn on its own. It's called unsupervised learning. Anyway, there's two types of learning, and these have been around since the 1960s. So what's happening right now is that in the field of AI, there are humans who are doing certain tasks, let's say. Let's say you're looking through a microscope and cytologists do this. There's 6,000 of them in the, in the world, in the, in the United States. They look through a microscope, they look at a cell and they have to, uh, based on their skills that they learn over many years, they have to decide is that cell cancerous or not. If it's cancerous, then it then the hospital says, okay, you know, it, it's major decisions that they make. So what's happening is this field of cytology, by way of example, Machines are watching how this human being is doing this and they're collecting training data. Okay. And then they want to emulate that person and eventually they'll eliminate this human being and they'll have a machine do it. Now, from a labor and a human perspective, my theory is quite a radical one is that that human being should be compensated for the transfer of that data and they should get a royalty in perpetuity for the knowledge that they transferred. Okay. Because in the ideal model, Joshua, AI in the hands of working people is very different than AI in the hand of the 0.0001%, again, a two-tier system. 
the AI in the hands of the swarm, they, they're going to want to depopulate people. And they're going to want to only make their lives better. You follow? Not everyone else's lives. So they're saying, oh, I can AI this out to everything else. Let me eliminate 90% of the world's population because I want more for me. Right? That's where AI leads to. Now, working people, we can say, oh, I'm working nine-hour days and I get paid little. Let me, the knowledge in the cytology case that I transfer, I can work two-hour days, but I'm getting in perpetuity a little piece of the knowledge that I transfer. You see, when someone goes to work and does cytology, they're getting paid 30, 40 bucks an hour for doing that. They're not getting paid for the transfer of that knowledge to a private company, which is not going to replace them. And this is occurring in every field. And I'll give you an example. This is occurring right now in the field of the entire Hollywood movie structure. Um, you know, the there is a big strike and the unions were brought in to protect the 160,000 union members. And it does not only actors involve sets and crews and all these people, right? So instead of protecting the union workers, these scumbag leaders, fake leaders, what they've done is they struck a deal with the Zionist Hollywood studios. And what they said was, you know what? We're going to allow AI. And what they did was very fine print. They said, okay, um, before, you, let's say you have 160,000 actors, you can start using digital replicas of them. And by the way, the technology is quite extraordinary. You can literally replicate your eye right now, Joshua, in terms of stuff we've done. So the machine learning has gotten quite good. So now what happens is a A-list actor who has a lot of money, he can negotiate his terms. He can say, okay, you can make, Tom Cruise can say, you can make a digital replica of me, but you're going to have to give me royalties. The union won't do that because he can lawyer up and he can do that and he can get multiple movies in the same year. The poor young performer or artist or even set designer, if they're given a role or an opportunity, they're going to have to, the, the studios are going to say, I'm only going to give you this role if you consent to AI, like I can make a digital replica. And if you're an up and coming person, you're going to say, okay, right? You don't have the same power as a elite actor. So Hollywood is creating these two tier systems. And this is what unions were not supposed to, they're no longer a union of solidifying all workers, right? So the unethical activity that's going on is that companies are essentially stealing people's knowledge and brain. They're not compensating them for that. And they're going to create two tiers of worker structures. And that's what's going on. This is at a very, very fundamental level. It's quite dangerous. And this SAG-AFTRA events that's going on with the Screen Actors Guild is going to set the basis for every field. And that's why the quote unquote two union leaders are running that are all scumbags. Because what they're also doing is that the union gets a little piece of royalty from the digital replicas. So the unions have become one with the union, with the bosses, you see? So where that goes, it's going to lead to depopulation. It's going to lead to unemployment without wage compensation you say but if you're a skilled electrician and you put your life into it and your knowledge is being transferred that knowledge you should get a little piece of the action that's called truly again getting back to intellectual property yep 
I, I, I love what you just said. I, I'm very passionate about independent media. And the reason why I'm passionate about it is because without media and the knowledge of media and being able to tap into the available tools, I would be homeless still. I, I wouldn't be able to get a job. I don't have a good education because I thought I was an idiot growing up in school because I couldn't learn the way they were trying to teach me. Yeah. Regardless of those reasons, uh, mental health issues and beyond, media is the very thing, the vehicle that has taken my life from being in the gutter to nothing to living the life of my dreams and getting to do, getting to interview you. I mean, that wouldn't happen without the tools that are available free, by, by the way. So I want to address what I'm saying, Joshua, with AI, the policies have to be constructed that they help the broad mass of working people and not the 0.0001% this two-tier model. And you're seeing it occur right now with this SAG-AFTRA bogus union, which has sold out its people. So what and are your strategies for closing the digital divide? Like, how are you going to assist these underprivileged areas to keep this from happening? Because I think it's the underprivileged areas, the people that don't have access to all the bag of goodies that some of us have. That's where all the genius comes from. That's where the yeah, and I, 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 know, and I know that from having created email in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the bottom line is innovation occurs in the edges, not in the center. So this concept of center of power is actually a bogus concept. Most things occur in the edges. The great things occur in the edges, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so one of the big things here is, you know, there's three aspects that engineering teaches you that exist in every engineering system. The movement of information, matter, and energy we call it transport, the conversion of information, matter, and energy. These are three of the principles we teach in our systems course. And the third is structure or infrastructure, okay? So we have more than enough capabilities right now to offer significant infrastructure to every, particularly every human in the United States, okay? And again, these postal services could be places for that. The buildings are already owned. The real estate exists. They have infrastructure, right? Mm. So the ability to give people internet access, right? Um, all sorts of high-speed high capabilities all through a net mesh network all exist, right? So my point is the technology actually exists. We don't need to create new technology. It's the policies are now owned by the 0.00001%. And the only way to overcome this is we have to educate a broad mass of people, Joshua, about what I'm saying. Like, it's not like we need to even, we could stop creating technology right now. It's about the deployment of the existing technology with the aim of educating broad masses of people versus keeping it to a, a small set of people and creating these two-tier systems, right? So why is it one set of actors get to protect their digital replicas and the rest of people have to be slaves, right? So once you do a movie, they own it and they never need you again, right? Why does that system exist? It exists because the people owning these technologies are the 0.001%. This is why we need a systems overhaul. And, and if you look at this graph here that I've shared on healthcare, that red line is the life expectancy, how it's going down in the United States. Oh my okay? God. It's going downward, right? And the rest of the world. So over the last 60 years, the elites have put policies that are destroying the health of everyone. So your child will have a shorter lifespan than you right now. So that leads to the central thing that those in power don't give a fuck about anyone else. True. And so their power needs to be taken away from them. 
And the only way to do that is not, you know, supporting Tweedledee versus Tweedledum, but people need someone like me, right? They need someone who actually knows how to build things, fix things, and actually is one of them. And in order to get over there, people need to have start raise their consciousness and start having respect for themselves, not having respect for Donald Trump or Booby fucking Kennedy or any of these people. Those guys don't work hard. That's right. Right? They don't. You've they said don't you've said a lot that our country has been taken over. And in fact, I've heard you say it a lot in interviews. Can we get our country back? Can we reclaim it? And if so, how? There's only one way that history shows is through a massive bottoms up movement that is highly conscious of how you build the bottoms up movement. Let me repeat that again. Um, it, it's like saying, oh, how are we gonna uh, achieve flight? Well, you need to understand the principles of flight so you could build the machinery that can teach you how to fly, that can, sorry, not teach you, but that can put you into flight. So the only way to win at this is you need to not only have the consciousness that you need to build a bottoms up movement, but also the tools on how do you build a bottoms up movement. And in some ways they're self-reflective because in order to come to the conclusion you need a bottoms up movement, you need to study a little bit and you need to study the history of how change actually occurs. Change has always occurred through everyday people's names who we do not know, re the real heroes, who have decided to connect with their neighbors and build these bottoms-up movements. It, it occurred during the 18, late 1800s and the early 1900s, right? A little bit in the 60s, you say? Um, but it is these bottoms-up movements that have changed the world. Not booby-fucking Kennedy, not Trump, not Bernie Sanders, not AOC, none of these people. These people are the fly traps that the establishment creates. So we think they're gonna do something for us, but they exist to channel Corrales back into the establishment. Now, what I just shared with you, um, Joshua, can only occur once you understand that the world is in fact a system, a complex system. And one of the principles of systems is the concept of a self-organizing system, which takes a system into different transitions. You know, it took me about 50 years to write a book called System and Revolution, and people don't have to get it, but I recommend you do, but you'll actually understand what is a system, so you don't have to spend 30 years at MIT, how systems undergo phase change, which I call a revolution, and how those revolutions come. And you realize it's like the hundredth monkey thing. Once people, you don't need to convince all 8 billion people, but when enough people understand, I think it's about 10,000 people really get it, the concept of beyond left and right, when people, and that's why these people like Booby fucking Kennedy and uh, Trump are so good, because for me as a teacher, they're extraordinary tools. Because you can say, look at this moron, he's part of the establishment, look at how he's manipulating you, look at his background, it's a teaching tool. And you can say, see, they're not gonna do shit for you because all they care about is bullshitting you so you support the swarm again. And the only way out of this is you have to build a bottoms up movement, which they don't want you to build. And that's why they make me invisible. And that's why they will make you invisible. That's why they make you not have any faith in yourselves. That's why they make you disrespect yourself. That's why every microsecond on all the mainstream media, they're hitting you with so much psychological, you know, messages to actually demean you and elevate themselves. They constantly creating these two tier systems right? That's what they do all day long. And the ultimate goal is for you not to honor yourself as someone who actually gets up and actually does an honest day's work. 
and to put your faith in them. So that's the only way. And so our movement, Truth, Freedom, Health, is doing that, Joshua. And so everyone should go to truthfreedomhealth.com, come to our open houses where you can learn how to do this for yourself. And then our campaign for president gives finally people an opportunity of what to raise their standards, to see one of us, me, in them and say, wow, this guy is one of me. Why am I even considering these morons? And then they have to get over the hump. Ooh, I don't think if you could win, you're running as an independent. Well, you have no choice because the alternative is that your children are going to keep dying. You know, it says the lesser of two evils is killing your children and including booby fucking Kennedy. He's, he's a true evil. Okay. He's a lesser of the lesser of two evils. <clears throat> this is my last question. Um, and and it's actually one of my favorite ones to ask you is because I, one of the things I respect about you so much is the fact that you are working a full-time job while running for president at the same and, time. And, and filing lawsuits and, filing and lawsuits. doing election systems integrity work and getting on the ground and running actual demonstrations and, you know, walking my dogs and making sure the house runs, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's really a 24 hour job. Joshua, so, and then people tell you, and I do this because of the great respect I have for where I came from, from those working class people who gave me what I have and my grandparents. And, and that's who I honor, you know, working people. And that's why I work so hard. Well, I was going to ask you what your typical day is, like what time you get up in the morning and what time you go to bed, like what day in, day out, especially right now. What, what happened to me was something, and I don't recommend this to everyone. Okay. Um, since I was 12 years old, I used to go to bed at two and wake up at seven because I wanted to achieve. So I would, you know, wake up at seven, you know, go to school and then do sports from, I think, whatever, like four to eight, you know, soccer or, you know, and, and we were on very large division teams where we were 13 and 0 baseball. You're Some people baseball. said I could have been, become a uh, major league baseball player. I wasn't, I was pretty good, you know? And then I'd come home at around eight, you know, then have dinner and then go from nine to two, man, doing lots and lots of problems. My dad and I would do all sorts of very complex problems. And I would actually help my father because my dad could speak English that well, but he was a phenomenal engineer and he would always be getting screwed at work. He was paid one third less than his other engineers and he would always be solving problems. And then he would have to do reports. And then I would end up typing all of his engineering reports up for him to help him. So I would do that. And then my dad would teach me all sorts of very complex math. So by the time I was in ninth grade, I'd finished calculus. But that was my typical day. So I learned how to get away with five hours of sleep. I learned to meditate at a very young age. So I would go into deep REM sleep, you say, And I still do that. So my typical day is, you know, getting up nowadays, you know, it's around, I'd probably get up around, you know, five, right? Four or five. And then I'll do, uh, you know, remember we're international, right? So I'll talk to some of our international leaders because they're at different time zones. You know, I'll do my email. I typically follow pretty, I try to follow, you know, when I can a decent health schedule, typically do lemon water in the morning, you know, do some type of uh, you know, protein with all sorts of stuff I throw in, you know, vegetables and all in all these mixes, right? To re because I can't operate without getting proper nutrition. 
Um, and then we'll do our morning meetings, which will go from typically eight to 10 with all of our global leaders, right? Operations meeting for all of our companies. And then, you know, um, I'll have to do, you know, some physical work, either write a paper, work on uh, some equation, right? Some analysis. And I typically try to go work out. You know, I do, I enjoy doing heavy weights, um, you know, very targeted weights in certain areas. And, and then I, if not, I'm four days a week or I do yoga at that time. And then it's back to work interviews, right? A um, lot of writing, a lot of messaging and communications and educating people. And then depends on if it's Thursdays. Thursdays is typically a 20 hour day, right? Because we're doing our open houses. Saturdays, we have leadership meetings. We're, we have now about 100 leaders we're training globally, okay? And so that's a typical day. And then Sunday is a little bit of a respite, right? But it's still, you know, a block of time where I try to do something that's creative or, you know, I, I enjoy cooking, these kind of things, right? But um, it's not work for me, Josh, because I really enjoy what I'm doing, you know? Um, I enjoy educating. I enjoy fighting these fuckers, you know? Um, it is a certain set of time you have to do on social media. But all of them are interconnected in this rubric of truth, freedom, health, science, and innovation, truth, freedom, fighting, right? And health, either infrastructure, we have to take care of our building, you have to take care of your physical health, you have to make sure you're generating enough revenue to be sustainable, right? So to me, all these things are interlinked. Wow. That is such a great answer. I, I've really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot from you and hearing your perspective, your answers, very honest, thoughtful, great answers. I, I just, I can't thank you enough. I This exceeded my expectations by a hundred. Thank you so can much. I, can I share with you, Joshua, a couple of things people should do as calls to action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the calls to action, um, is I recommend everyone and John will play this video on our stuff. And I, I think you can, if you, I think you're taping this, right, Joshua? Yes, sir. Yeah. So if people, you can share it with your people later on, cool. but John will share two videos. Um, but if people go to truthfreedomhealth.com, they will see here that we have this phenomenal program, um, truth, freedom, health. And, um, so there's two videos. It's people should watch the swarm video, but more importantly, this is a video you can play for your audience, get educated or be enslaved. Um, and you know, our movement now is about half a million people in 120 countries. And this movement really teaches people and our stories of people who've taken our program are everyday people. You can see homeschoolers, artists, electricians, right? Daycare directors. But we have a history of winning. We teach people how to fight, how to win, how to take care of their bodies from a system perspective. But fundamentally, what we're doing, Joshua, is to recognize even though there's lots of information, doesn't mean people are getting more healthier, feeling better, as you can see by the statistics here, right? More people are obese, more people want to overthrow their governments, et cetera. And the reason is because all this information is being fed through the lens of ignorance, where people get deluded or complacent or desperate into this left and right. And the only, and by the way, these are the people who you think are helping you. But these are the people who are the manufacturers of that ignorance. Okay. And the only way out of this is wisdom and wisdom. And that's the era that we live in. There's so much psychological operation taking place and wisdom will allow you to get clarity and where you become an activist and organize and you become innovative. But the only way you get to that is knowledge and knowledge is different than information. It's understanding the science of systems. So I recommend 
everyone go here. John will play the video, but the key video is, you know, this one right here on the right, you know, get ed educator, be enslaved. The other thing that I would recommend people go to is, you know, for our campaign, go to Shiva for president. And I want to encourage everyone to go to Shiva for president and get one of these bumper stickers. Why? Because this bumper sticker makes you a activist because a lot of our people, Jonathan, work full time, but they can put this on the rear windshield on the lower left and 100,000 people will see it. The other thing is they can also become educators overnight. They go to the free downloads. There's a flyer. You see that, Jonathan? Jonathan? Uh, I'm Joshua. I see it. Sorry, Joshua. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm just talking to John here. Sorry. Oh. Um, um, and what you see here is this flyer everyone can download and they can print. Okay. So, and it educates people. The left side teaches people what's going on all over the world in the United States. Life expectancy is going down. And this is not because of the vaccines or any one thing. It's because of a whole system of policies that we need to overhaul and we need to overthrow the swarm or we need to shatter the swarm. They can understand who is the swarm, who is our enemy. It's not the Rothschilds or BlackRock. It's not any one group. It's a whole bunch. It's a systemic operation. And then the right side gives them the solution. You know, they can watch our campaign video. They can get educated or be enslaved by becoming a truth for health warrior. And they can obviously come to our open houses where they will learn how to take care of their body, shop properly, okay? Uh, education, right? Governance, et cetera. So that's what we recommend people do. So I hope that helps, Joshua. But that's what I want to share with people. I, I really, I can, I've watched the Swarm video about 10 times. Yeah. And it would make sense to anyone, regardless of your belief system and what you've been indoctrinated into, watch that video. It is a wonderful job of delivering truth in a way that anyone could understand. And it, takes, and, it, and it takes a systems approach. So when you put this together, Joshua, you know, they, they can watch that Truth Freedom Health Systems video, not the Swarm video. Um, and then um, they can also go to Shiva for President and play the campaign video. All right, Joshua, I hope this is valuable. Thank you for your very thoughtful questions and your kindness. Yes, in, sir. Uh, Thank you. Having I'm me rooting on. for you all the way, Dr. Shiva. All right. Well, get it out to everyone. Yes, sir. Shout out I will. to everyone. Uh, everyone support what Joshua is doing. Uh, we need more uh, people who are open to really looking at things how they are and supporting us, not them. It is us versus them. Don't let anyone tell you, heal the divide like fucking Kennedy is. <laughs> We're not here to heal the divide. We're here to make sure that we expose what the real division is. The 0.0001% versus the 8 billion people. There is a divide. So let's get them. All right. Thanks, Dr. Shiva. Thank hey, you. John, if you're listening, can you play the anthem video and right after play the uh, president video, John? Thank you, everyone. Be well. I'm checking out, John. I got to take a couple of calls. Be well. We have allowed our country to be taken over from within. And the end goal is you will have a homogenized world where we will become slaves because there is a condition among the elites that really thinks they're better than you, deep down inside them, that you don't deserve the freedoms you have. They don't. This reality is what people need to wake up to, and we need to all unite working people. There's only one movement that can do that, and that is the movement that we started creating here in Massachusetts, the Movement for Truth, Freedom, and Health. Look, I've been a student of politics since I was a four-year-old kid. 
studying revolutionary movements, left wing, right wing. There is a physics, there's a nuclear science to destroying the establishment. To build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equation. You need to understand the laws of gravity. You need to understand Poisson's ratio. There is a way to build a revolution. And that's why I put this together. My goal is to train a army of truth, freedom, and health leaders. We don't need followers like social media. We need leaders, but they need training because the educational system does not teach them history, nothing. So in three hours, that's what I've started doing. That's the solution. Wow. We got to train people first with understanding what a system is, the dynamics of all systems that affect nature. The second is understanding the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is the ability to move freely, communicate freely, talk freely. Without freedom, you cannot convert ideas hypothesis into truth, which is science. And without freedom, you can't really get to truth. And without truth, you make up fake problems and fake solutions, which means you destroy our health. And without health, which is the infrastructure of us and our body, you can't fight for freedom. Truth, freedom, health. Third concept is it has to be bottoms up. Working people, people who work uniting. And what the right wing has done is whenever you say working people unite, that must be communist. Meanwhile, they've let the Democrats run unions, which suppress workers, completely corrupt. But when you look at the arc of American history, it's been when working people came up. We need to go local. Every solution I'm coming up with as a part of this movement, we're giving the science, which is the truth, and then we tell people what they can do on the ground. Like with election fraud, you don't need to wait for some lawyer. Our goal is to train people to go local, to go local, to go local, fight locally. Forget lawyers, forget politicians, Forget celebrities, you got to learn politics, and there is a science to it. They lock us down, we should be ready to shut them down. And the fourth part of this principle is the not-so-obvious establishment. So when you look at a system, there's always something that disturbs you from getting to your goal. Well, the biggest disturbance is the not-so-obvious establishment, which are those people who claim they're for you, on the left and the right, the Al Sharptons who tell black people I'm for you, the Tucker Carlsons. Do you think any true anti-establishment person will ever be on Fox or CNN? I don't think so. They both mislead working people back into the establishment. Without this solid understanding of political physics and theory, you're screwed. You're going to follow on the left wing, Bernie Sanders, oh, he said something, or Robert Kennedy, scumbags. Or you're going to follow some right wing talk show host. They're not going to lead us to liberation. It's us. We're building a bottoms up movement. And that political physics, it's a nuclear science of change. Bottoms up. We have to organize to understand that there is people who talk a good game and then look at what they actually do, left and right. I'm sorry, Sean Hannity may say some good things, but I don't see the urgency in his voice to get something done. And it can only come when you weaponize yourself with the right knowledge. You need to be able to identify a rat. You know, Christ didn't go after the Romans, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who screwed him up. His own quote-unquote people. And that's where we're at. So these four concepts I've built into a curriculum where people can go to truthfreedomhealth.com and it's an educational program. We need to train people in political theory. You need to have physics. And I've created that curriculum. People need to get educated. We need to get educated fast. And within a half an hour, an hour, I can teach people two years of MIT control systems. I teach people those concepts. Then I apply it. Anyone can understand it. And then you say, oh, I got to build a bottoms up movement. They have to get politically astute, and then they have to go locally and act, not sit there on social media. They have to act locally, defy locally, do civil obedience locally, but with knowledge on how to build a movement. And the Senate campaign's expanded to the movement for truth, freedom, and health, and they can find it on truthfreedomhealth.com so people can sign in, they can get access to a bunch of videos. If they want to 
take a course and become a truth, freedom, health leader. I offer a full scholarship there, but we want people to make a commitment that they'll study, that they'll get certified, that they'll go do activities on the ground. So go to truthfreedomhealth.com. Who would have ever thought I'd be running for President of the United States of America? I was born a low-caste untouchable in India's caste system, a system of aristocracy, oppression, and racism. My name is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I'm an MIT PhD, a Fulbright scholar, a scientist, engineer, entrepreneur, and inventor. My family and I left India to come to America on my seventh birthday. I grew up in the working-class neighborhoods of New Jersey, playing baseball, mowing lawns, painting houses, and coding software. My friends and neighbors are blacks, Italians, Irish, people of all races. As a 14-year-old, I wrote 50,000 lines of software code to create the world's first email system and was awarded the first U.S. copyright for email, recognizing me as its official inventor at a time when copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. I did that long before I ever came to MIT, revealing that big innovations can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. Growing up, I saw politicians dividing us by race and religion in both America and India to have us fighting each other while they remained safe in their gated communities and in their playgrounds of Hollywood, Martha's Vineyard, and Silicon Valley. I'm a fighter. I fought racism and exposed their imperialist wars, fought for workers, and put my life on the line against global corruption. I never wanted to run for political office. All that changed when I saw working Americans as never before being duped by the establishment and the not-so-obvious establishment. Across left and right, we were being sold out and made to forget why we came to America and why America existed. Lawyers, academics, billionaires, celebrities and politicians, elites, Clintons, Kennedys, Bidens, Obamas, Bushes, black and white have hijacked America. They printed trillions for their friends. They delivered crumbling infrastructure, corruption and racism. They transferred trillions to themselves, dividing black and white, fear-mongering and fake science, lockdowns and censorship, dirty air, food and water, pushing drugs upon us, making us sicker. We've been sold out. One set of rules for them and another for us. We deserve a warrior with a history of courage in putting everything on the line for you, who believes in you, not them, who has created a movement bottoms up for truth, freedom, health. I've exposed their lies at the right time, never waiting until it was popular. I've exposed their false gods who exist to lead you back to them. I've exposed their fake science of lockdowns and masking and provided you solutions to fight them and win and protect your immune system, saving millions. I exposed Fauci, galvanized the fire Fauci campaign when others remained silent. When they stole our election, we sued the government and Twitter in our historic 2020 federal lawsuit, exposing in bare view the government and big tech censorship infrastructure, the unholy alliance between government and social media companies. Where was Elon and his grifters? They stood by the sidelines and did nothing. They did not use their megaphones to help us when it could have made a big difference. Now our movement grows for truth, freedom, health, independent of all of them. Every day millions are learning the science of systems, the knowledge the elites do not want you to have, so you may learn how to think, stand up, and fight, independent of the establishment of left and right and their fake heroes. Now it's time for you to join the movement to win back America, to win back truth, win back freedom, win back your health. That's why I'm running for President of the United States. This race is about you. This race is about truth, freedom, health versus power, profit, control. We've had enough. They think we'll fall in line and vote again for their lawyers, celebrities, billionaires, and chosen ones from above. 
We choose our heroes from below, from the rank and file who do what is right at the right time, not when it's convenient and popular. They can never represent us. What America needs is a movement by the working people for the working people who are educated, organized, decentralized, and fight for independence from their systems of control. And that movement exists. It's ready for you. We don't need them. We need us to go bottoms up, neighbor to neighbor. My journey, your journey are all the same. It's our time. It's time we had one of us. It's time to win back truth, freedom, health, to win back America, be part of this historic movement all the way to our victory on November 5th, 2024. If you're an American citizen, pledge your vote now for Dr. Shivaya Duray, the independent candidate for U.S. president. No matter where you live, you can be a part of this. Volunteer as little as 20 minutes a day. Don't delay. This is Dr. Shivaya Duray, and I approve this message paid for by Dr. Shiva for president.